there has been a definite hesitancy among those within the government, Republican and Democrat, and the media, to refer to the American Democrat Party by the ideology they promote. To be a Democrat, by definition, refers to supporting a democratic society for its principles. And this is characterized by an egalitarian approach to governing or promoting social equity. To the adherence of this idea, it's critically important to encourage diversity and provide security and to have empathy. And the Democrats believe that collective wisdom rather than individuality is the focal point. Together, we can achieve more, you see. There is power in numbers. Now, many view the Democratic ideal, and it has been said, that it is by far the most Christ-like position a man can hold. This was expressed in an article published in the Huffington Post on June 20, 2017. And therefore, it was a theological consideration, and we have the right to discuss the theological position proposed in response to the historical presentation of the, quote, godly demeanor of the democratic position. The facts are that the Democrats believe religion should be valued if it is good for the whole or the collective. A singular monotheistic theological view of God is very restrictive and polarizing. Religion is to be promoted and encouraged within the understanding of the collective ideals. It must fit within the political ideology, or it will serve to contradict their position. Uh, the conservative failure to promote this particular idea reveals a smaller mind that's controlled by greed and individuality, which is ultimately selfishness. It indicates a great flaw in the general character of the entire ideology and its adherents. Thus, the prevailing view is that the Democrats are good and compassionate, and the conservatives are bad and cold-hearted. Democrats are, by choice, humanist in their religious views, pragmatic in their approach, and thus are forced by their own reasoning to refuse the Christian idea of God, the Bible, man's nature, sin, heaven, hell, and eternal destiny. Here is the entire battle between the two primary ideologies in all of American politics. Is man basically good, or is he depraved in nature? Everything rises or falls on this fundamental question. Everything. Democrats elect to hold to the veracity of science and measurable data. They cling to the empirical evidence. This is pragmatic and logical, rather than irresponsibly holding to a notion of ethereal unseen gods who claim omniscience and who act capriciously, showing favor to some and disapproving of others. Various ideologies have risen and fallen throughout history. Rome stood for over a thousand years, being built upon the idea of power and might and the strong arm of government. Alexander the Great ruled with the sword. Kings have ruled throughout Europe through edict and armies. It was Karl Marx and Frederick Engels that formulated an idea of forcing fairness through the ideals of the collective unity of the masses, and this was expressed in a succinct manner in their Communist Manifesto. Globally, it had been called and referred to as socialism, or here in the United States, progressivism. It began through a socialistic approach that would bring equality and practical balance to the masses. Under this approach, each would give according to their ability, and each would receive according to their need. A good concept that has historically failed in application in every instance where it has been applied. Who determines who has what ability? Who determines who has what need? Who determines the amount of need and how that need is to be met and with what? Under socialism, the collective determines the need and the requirements to meet that need, not the individual. But we must determine who or what guides the collective. An individual? 
A group of people? A party of men? A bureaucracy, an administrative body made up of those who support this particular approach. Who manages that particular administrative body? What if there's dissenting views expressed by various groups within the collective? History is, indeed, the science of discovery. Doesn't history reveal that such a position requires an iron hand to rule? Indeed it does. Mao and Stalin are primary examples. Attila the Hun, Alexander the Great, Caesar, Robespierre. Are not these men and their ideas prime examples revealed through scientific research? The historical data is evident and available for any and all who wish to look at it. The fact is, the American idea was not established to be a democratic nation. The founders fought for and established something that had never been seen or practiced throughout history, a constitutional republic run by the people for the people. Individual liberty was the fundamental principle that was to govern. The individual liberty was the focal point. The people would elect their leaders to be ruled by agreed-upon laws, expressed in and guided by a constitution that could be changed through amendments and through a process that was provided. Democracies tend to evolve into a single-party rule, and the single party exerts the power of that party's collective views while ignoring the masses. If you own a farm and the collective says, we want to make a road that will make it easier for the collective of people to reach another town, this collective can, through democratic means, take your farm without your permission, build a road through your farm, and force you to go along. The collective works through force of numbers, and it works against the individual desire. Conservative views insist upon personal rights toward life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Conservatives believe in the right to private personal property gained through personal effort. My money is what I earned through the work that I performed. My home is my castle, and the collective has no rights to it. Conservatives believe laws must be put in place that protect these individual rights. Laws that are enforced through proper policing. Law without force is not law, but a suggestion. The view of the founders began to crumble and decay under the rule of various men, with a particular emphasis on the Civil War. This is by no means an assertion that we as a people should have tolerated slavery as a matter of personal property. That never was really consideration among the founders, but a compromise had to be made in order for the Constitution to be ratified. Elimination and revocation of slavery was definitely discussed during the Constitutional Convention of 1787, and ratification of the Constitution was seriously challenged by those from South Carolina regarding the slavery question. There was a definite compromise that led to civil war. During the Civil War, the Constitution of the United States was seen as a malleable document with inherent flaws, and rather than follow the prescribed provisions, the government took great liberties in reconstructing the meaning and the intentions expressed within the Constitution. Thus began a chain of events that has yet to be halted. The Civil War allowed the government to alter the document on which our, our nation was founded. Fifty years later, another war widened that opening, World War I, and a flood of new ideas came in. The government turned dramatically towards democracy. Progressive taxation was introduced. The Federal Reserve was created. And the hand of government began to pick apart individual liberty in favor of the collective. And the collective was quite verbal and visible. Vanderbilt, Rockefeller, Carnegie, J.P. Morgan, and the robber barons formed the monster of Jekyll Island. The ideals of Marx and higher criticism were all the rage in academia. 
and the nation was in a period of great economic expansion. Everybody was happy because their pockets were full of money and their mouths were full of food. The money flowed freely, and the government was seen as the savior. However, the wealthy men began to see their wealth diminishing, so our leaders had to be consulted. Now, these leaders were trusted with the future of our nation. If you examine history scientifically, you'll discover that cataclysmic political changes were made to our Constitution and forced upon a fearful and weakened people. The government grew exponentially during the times of war, and the rights and the privileges of the people were diminished. Lincoln introduced us to the mighty arm of the federal government. Wilson brought about financial changes. Roosevelt brought the government into every aspect of society. Lyndon Johnson brought the great society and social changes that have caused chaos that has not slackened but only grown. The one common thread in all of this, if you look and consider, was war. Every significant alteration to the American Constitutional Republic has been made during and as a result of war. These changes have resulted not in greater liberties for the people, but in higher taxes, more strength for the government, greater restrictions and regulations upon the people, and limiting of constitutional allowances given to the people. War for the Socialist Democrat is a means to a political end internally. The historical results has always been power and control, not in the Ukraine or Russia, Vietnam or abroad, but here at home. We're considering how the American left, the Democrat Socialist, has moved from fundamental principles of classical liberalism, as espoused by John Locke, William Blackstone, and Montesquieu, and the other philosophers, along with the most referred to writings, the Word of God, the Bible. They are moving quickly from this and embracing socialism, which Marx both introduced and explained as being the first and most critical step towards communism. So following history, we must consider Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his New Deal. Under this program, the entire Constitution was modified, and socialism was announced as our government's defining position. That title, of course, was not used, as it was seen as a bad word. It was not referred to publicly as socialism, but as progressivism. Its foundational principles were rooted in Marxist ideology, and socialism, as we said earlier, was the first step. Roosevelt's New Deal declared that the government in Washington would grant us rights and concessions. But we, the people, had to be willing to give up certain privileges. The anomaly was this. We, the people, offered the government rights, restrictions, and regulations according to the Constitution of the United States. However, somehow, during the panic and the trials of both the Depression and the war, we, the people, capitulated. We allowed a transfer of power to take place. Roosevelt introduced us to the great, big, powerful government that we now know. He wasted no time in becoming intrinsically involved in every aspect of American life, usurping control in education, business, farming, housing, financing, international affairs, medical care, and even retirement funds. Washington encroached upon personal liberty to such a degree that today we do not realize or recognize how socialized we are. The government has altered the culture of America through excessive regulation, restriction, and taxation, and now it appears that there is a great push to finally implement the fundamental principles of communism as the governing principle. We focus on China and Russia as enemies, and they are, but the greatest enemy is found here within our borders. It is the idea that is being forced upon the masses. It has been taught for several generations, and I sat under this schooling as well. It is being taught to our children relentlessly with the avail of an evangelical. 
According to a recent Harris poll, 61% of 18 to 24-year-olds have a favorable view of socialism, which is to say that they have a distaste for the foundational free market system that has been the backbone of American society since its inception. Today, the biblical God is ridiculed and mocked. Our youth are being sexualized, and our history is being revised through Marxist revisions. The America of our founders is a faded memory, and our future is not appealing. Bob Dylan, who once was hailed as a prophetical voice of the times during the early 60s, and the voice of its generation, sang to a nation of facts that have proven to be true. Come, senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway, don't block the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled, and there's a battle outside, and it's raging. It'll soon shake your windows and rattle your walls, for the times, they are changing. This was the cry of the youth 60 years ago. These youth grew to be our leaders, occupying the halls of Congress, the classrooms of our places of higher learning, our pulpits, and corporations. Their days, believe it or not, are past. Now these peace are sitting in their homes at 70 and 80 years old, but their children are rising in their stead. They're pushing harder and further than their fathers dreamed of going. Their aim is utopia, a place that never has been or ever will be. Their ideas are expressed through the works of Karl Marx, Derek Bell, Herbert Marcuse, Antonio Gramsci, and in our day, a host of others. The transformation introduced is nothing more than another step in a centuries-long process of social transformation. Robespierre replaced kings and priests with bureaucrats and administrative authority. The Industrial Revolution turned artisans and craftsmen into assembly line workers, producing cogs and widgets. The 60s were no different, nor are the radical pro progressives or the new Marxists of our day. We're on a stairway, but not one of ascension. With each transmogrification, technology expands and reaches higher levels of specialization, higher than we could ever realize, while morality and spiritual decay eat at our souls like an incurable cancer, and mankind is greatly suffering. Are these the best of times or the worst of times? Let's consider in our consideration of the American left, from liberalism to despotism. Now, we've already considered how the Socialist Democrats brought into American culture a new kind of personal politics. Let's see how this played out in the Civil Rights Movement.